Well, I don't know about you, but I almost don't want to watch the news anymore. It just seems like it's filled with nothing apart from terrible things going on in our world. Stories of horrendous individual suffering all the way through to tragedies playing out on a national scale. Another wicked act is uncovered. Another hundred people are killed. There's, there's such a flood of this, it seems, it has to bring us to tears and despair. Or, or maybe to send us into a rage at all the wrong in our world. Or maybe it just overwhelms us and leaves us numb to it all. Who could let these things happen? Why doesn't somebody do something? Are Boko Haram really going to get away with kidnapping 200 schoolgirls? Is, is no one able to bring the war in Syria to an end? Can Putin really just annex Crimea? Who's going to take care of this mess of a world? Maybe, maybe you're here today thinking there is no one to take care of it. That's exactly why we're in such a mess. Maybe you're hoping some election is going to change this. Maybe some new rulers will put things right. Or maybe you're thinking nothing can change it. But for, for us who believe there is a God in charge of this world, I think the mess actually poses a bigger problem. Where is God in all of this? How can he let people get away with such evil? How can he stand by and let these things happen? These aren't new questions. They aren't just modern concerns. More than 25 centuries ago, Isaiah was talking to people who faced the same questions. Where is God? How can he let people get away with this? But you know, they weren't just watching it on the news. They were living in the middle of it themselves. The, the church here has been working through some of the book of Isaiah. It's a Jewish prophet speaking to what was left of Israel, really, as the nation faced a crisis which looked for all the world like it was going to wipe it off the face of the map. Israel were God's chosen people, chosen by him from all of the nations. And yet when Isaiah's writing, the kingdom's already been torn into two parts and then decimated by this Assyrian empire. There's a tiny fraction of the kingdom left just a corner of what once was. How could this happen to God's people? How could their enemies get away with this? Why didn't God do something? Well, Isaiah, as God's prophet, he brings God's answer to the people. And what he says has relevance for us as well as we face these same questions. Now, God's answer has two sides to it. We're going to take them one at a time. So can you find Isaiah 34 with me? And we'll read what God has to say. Isaiah 34 is on page 718 in these red Bibles. Isaiah 34, page 718. Let me read what God has to say. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. 
their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved. And the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. The people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat. The blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them. The bull calves and the great bulls, their land will be drenched with blood. And the dust will be soaked with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. A year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch. Her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise forever and ever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will rest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She'll become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also repose and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There also the falcons will gather, each with its mate. Look in the scroll of the Lord and read. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate. For it is his mouth that has given the order. And his spirit will gather them together. He allots their portion. His hand distributes them by measure. They will possess it forever and dwell there from generation to generation. Phew. That's quite some passage, isn't it? What's going on here? Isaiah sets out the first part of his answer to our questions. It's an announcement of divine judgment. Something absolutely everyone is to hear. Look at verse 1. It says, come near nations. Pay attention, peoples. Let the earth hear. The world, all that comes out of it. This message is for everyone. And we're given front row seats for the judgment itself. It's an extremely graphic picture, isn't it? Perhaps even brutal. God's anger and wrath being played out in destruction and slaughter. In desolation depopulation by the time God is done there's nothing left no people only ruins and a home for the creatures why such a terrible judgment why something so utterly terminal here well verse 8 explains for us verse 8 says the Lord has a day of vengeance a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Vengeance. Retribution. Don't those words have a bit of a negative ring to them? Punishment 
inflicted for an injury or a wrong, the dictionary says to me. We might think of settling the score. We might think of getting even or getting back at someone. Isn't that exactly the sort of thing Jesus conspicuously did not do? Do we have a bit of a good cop, bad cop going on here with an angry God of the Old Testament standing in sharp contrast to a loving God of the New Testament? No. No. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 13. He says, The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil and they will throw them into a blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or listen to Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, as he writes to one of his churches. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Or listen to Jesus in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people, one from another, as a, separate, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And what does he say to the sheep? Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And what does he say to the goats? Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We have quite the wrong picture of Jesus, you see, if we think he's all meek and mild, busy wandering around in a dressing gown, giving people hugs. Now Jesus talks about exactly the same, catastrophic, Extreme judgment. One God. One judgment. There will be justice done. See, that's what we have to have in our minds when we read of God's vengeance and retribution. What do these words mean? Justice. Punishment for a wrong. And justice is good. Justice is something we all want. Boko Haram should not get away with it. Imagine it's your daughter who has been taken. It is good to punish wrong. The world breathes a sigh of relief when justice is done. It's what we want. And that's the first part of Isaiah's answer to our question. How can God let this happen? How can God let these things take place? How can he let them get away with it? He doesn't. He won't. Justice is coming. Now, if you'd call yourself a Christian here today, what does this, what does this mean for you? What does it mean for us? Well, terrible judgment is coming, but we know the way out. Picture yourself standing on a beach as the sea draws back and back. You know what this means. A tsunami is coming. One of these huge earthquake 
formed waves. The sea has gone far too far. It's stretched out. All this unexpected sand. Well, we look around the beach and we see all the people who are going to get washed away when the wave comes. Maybe, maybe our friends are standing next to us. Maybe some of our family are there on the beach just enjoying the sun. Well, this, this coming wave, this coming destruction should make us scream. But so often, I find my mouth shut tight. Aren't I more worried about what my friends are going to think of me than how they'll suddenly be washed away? I don't want to push the boat out and be socially awkward, so I leave them standing there in front of the wave. Well, if you have an eye for detail, you might wonder why Edom is singled out for this terrible judgment there in verse 5. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. Now, if you recall from last week, the, the wider context, what's going on when this is being written? What's going on when the, uh, the audience who hear this? Well, to the north of them is the great and mighty Assyrian empire that's coming to decimate and destroy, that's already taken most of their country away. To the south of them is the superpower Egypt, who deserted them, a worthless ally. And rising, rising up over here is Babylon, who will come and wipe them off the face of the map. So why is Edom singled out for judgment here? All these superpowers, but little insignificant Edom gets judged? Why is that? Well, Isaiah has already talked about judgment on Assyria a few chapters back. Here's what he said in Isaiah 31.8. He said, Assyria will fall by no human sword. A sword, not of mortals, will devour them. It's not that Assyria, the current enemy, aren't going to face judgment. They are. In the coming weeks, as we carry on through this book of Isaiah, we're going to read the chapters narrating exactly that judgment. But here it's as if we're, we're zooming further out. The judgment isn't just about the present enemy making headlines, the nation-winning foe of the week. This, this reaches much wider. Isaiah is letting us see things from God's perspective. So we need to dig into who this Edom nation are. What is it that they symbolize? Do you, do you know where Edom come from? See, the, the Israelites hearing this, they certainly would have known. Edom has a very famous origin. Israel, God's people, they're the descendants of one man, Jacob, who God renamed Israel. That's why they call them the, the children of Israel, because that's exactly what they were, the children of this man called Israel. You can read that in Genesis 35. But Israel, or Jacob, he had a brother, a twin brother, Esau. Now, just like his brother, Esau was the father of a nation, and his nation was Edom. So Edom stands here as the anti-Israel, as the brother who wasn't chosen. If you like, it's like the other side of the coin, a symbol for everyone else. It's like the other team on the pitch. You see, there really are only two teams. There's God's team, and there's everyone else. There's no, there's no third group waving about in the middle. There's no one just sitting in the stadium and watching this drama unfold. Everyone's on the pitch. 
and you're either on one team or you're on the other and this judgment is coming, maybe you're here today and you're not really sure which team you're on. Maybe you get along fine with God's people. Maybe, maybe you like what you hear about this Jesus guy. But you just don't feel like you need to stand up and put on the strip. Maybe you're thinking you can hold off for now and just enjoy yourself and pick teams later on. Well, remember what Paul read to us from the New Testament? Matthew 24, 37. Let me read that again to us. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand. The one taken, the other left. Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Go back to that picture of a beach and a wave coming. Judgment is coming. It is certainly coming. So it's time to pick your team. Nobody knows quite when the whistle's going to blow. So that's the half of Isaiah's answer. Why doesn't God do something about all this? He will. Judgment is coming. The score will be settled. But that's only half the answer. Have you got Isaiah open still? We'll read the rest of his answer in chapter 35, page 719, chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They'll see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. The haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Well, there's a pretty sharp contrast. On the one hand, we have Edom, representing the enemies of God, turned into a wasteland, a burning desert, decimated. And here, on the other hand, we have 
a desert turned into an oasis. A once lifeless place now bursting with fertility and a broken people restored. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom, verse 1 tells us. That's quite some turnaround. So here then is the second half of Isaiah's answer. Why doesn't God do something? He will. Salvation is coming for God's people. Salvation is coming. And this chapter, I think, gives us a wonderful picture of what the salvation is. What does it actually look like? What does it mean to be saved? Escaping judgment? Yes. But that's just a part of the answer. The chapter paints a picture of a richer, broader concept of what salvation ultimately means. Restoration. Relationship. Redemption. Just take a quick look at each of those in turn. So firstly, the image of restoration, verse 5, has a catalogue of restoration, turnarounds. The eyes of the blind are opened. Deaf are hearing, lame leaping, mute shouting, dry desert flooded. Everything put back to how it was meant to be. Eyes, ears, mouth, legs, desert people restored to wholeness but not just individual people relationships restored society renovated this curse that strangles our world finally lifted the whole world put right so there's that restoration side to salvation as well but there's more as well did you see the highway that shows up in verse 8 what's a highway got to do with salvation a highway will be there might sound to us like a rather unpleasant outcome of some government development project. It used to be wilderness as far as you could see, but now, alas, now they've gone and slapped a highway right in the middle of it. But we have to take our modern eyes off for a moment. Now, I've heard stories of the old A9, and while you might think what we have today is is not that much of a road, it it seems it's a truly massive improvement. Uh, My father-in-law tells tales of their extended odysseys on this windy monster which winds down from the frozen north. The current road's a real improvement. It's easier, it's faster, it's safer, and perhaps one day the whole thing will be a beautiful dual carriageway. At last, you can slip past the crawling tractor without taking your life into your hands. Well, just like that old A9, travel in Israel was hard, it was dangerous, and a highway would make the world of difference, but but a highway's only useful because of where it gets you. Unless you're one of those slightly strange people who just likes to drive around without going anywhere. But where where does this highway go? Where will it let God's people get to? See in verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. It lets them return to Zion. It lets them come back to God. That's what the highway symbolizes. a, A means for God's people to come to him and to be reunited. So there's that second image of salvation. We have have restoration, but we also have this way to come back to God and see that most important connection in life restored, relationship. The relationship we were made for with God. Well, the final image I want to highlight here is the way the people returning to God are described. See, who is it who's on this highway? Only the redeemed, verse 9 says. 
the ransomed of the Lord. Verse 10 adds, redeemed. Redeemed is one of those great Christian words. We like to throw it around, but I think it's worth taking a moment to think about what does it mean to be redeemed? Ransomed from verse 10, I think, helps us right away. It's more transparent in our current context. What does it mean if you've been ransomed? It means somebody paid a price to get you back. Well, redeemed. Redeemed has very much the same sense to it. It connects to a bunch of Israelite law around how extended families are meant to look after each other in a crunch. How if anyone in a family found their back up against a wall and had to sell property, or even in the extreme, themselves into slavery, if they had to sell themselves when they ran out of cash, well, the extended family had this duty to redeem, to buy back what was sold. So why is redemption here in this picture of salvation? What's the image doing? Why would you or I need to be redeemed or ransomed? And the image tells us we've, we've fallen into somebody else's power. We need to be brought back. It's like, it's like we've been taken by pirates and they're demanding money. But who are these pirates? Who or what has taken us captive so we need to be ransomed? The Bible tells us it's sin that has taken us captive. A little old-fashioned word, not so popular nowadays. Doing the things we shouldn't do. Not doing the things we should. Sin. But how can sin be like this pirate that takes us captive and demands a price? Well, remember chapter 34? Judgment is coming. Judgment on what? Judgment on sin. That's what's coming. Wrong is getting its punishment. So our sins put a price on our head. A price which we are going to pay. See, we belong in chapter 34. All of us belong in chapter 34. Judgment is coming. And we're, we're helpless in the face of it. We're a prisoner. What's this salvation in this picture? Redemption. Someone else paying the price to set us free, buying us back. And who is it? Well, it's God in Jesus. Paying the price for our sins. Paying back what we never could. It's a wonderful picture of salvation for us. So that's the second half of Isaiah's answer to our question. Why doesn't God do something? He will. Salvation is coming for God's people. This restoration, this relationship back, this redemption. And see the response it produces in verse 10? They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing. They'll flee away. There's an avalanche of joy. It's like Isaiah's working down his list in the thesaurus and he just runs out of words and finds himself back at joy again. Sorrow comes to an end, a full stop. That's what's ahead of us in this journey. That's what's at the end of this tunnel of life. And that's how we'll answer the question finally. Rejoicing that our God is justice. And that our God saves. So, what about now? What about today? What good is Isaiah's answer to our question? Well, we're still in the middle of this. Well, evil still seems to triumph. Well, the wicked still seem to get away with it. Well, we remain broken people in a broken society. 
what Isaiah says, hold on. Yeah, there's so much wrong, so overwhelmingly much wrong, it feels crushing. But Isaiah says, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. So don't be crushed. Don't lose this hope. Don't have your knees give way under you, collapsing to the floor. Don't chuck it in. Don't give up. Don't have your hands hang limp, reduced to just passive inaction in the face of all of this. Put yourself in the shoes of the original audience for a moment. Remember, remember where they were? They were staring out at a vast, utterly overwhelming Assyrian army who'd already decimated most of their land. They were coming to finish the job. Well, try steadying your knees then. Try strengthening your hands in the face of that. All Isaiah has to give them is just the encouragement that there will be justice one day, there will be salvation one day. Doesn't that just sound like pie in the sky when you die? We should be very thankful that we don't stand in that same place as them. We have it much easier than that original audience. Give thanks to God. We stand centuries after that. Where more of God's plan for the world has unfolded. You see, Jesus has come. Well, look at verse 2. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. Centuries later, they did. That's what they saw in Jesus. Hebrews tells us the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Or or Jesus himself says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the world saw the glory of the Lord, the splendor of God, just like Isaiah said they would. They saw that when Jesus came. Or look at verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped? Well, Remember, Jesus opened blind eyes. Jesus unstopped deaf ears. Look at verse 6. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. Remember Jesus making the lame walk again? Giving the mute speech. Restoration began with Jesus. Now, yes, it's just a chip in a massive wall of brokenness. Just a drop in this ocean of need. But it began. Lastly, we talked about redemption, about this paying the price on our head for our sins. Well, Jesus has won for us this redemption. He himself says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Or Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You see, we are redeemed. This ransom now has been paid. Think about the highway leading back to God. What does Jesus say? I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. We talked about this highway as a restoration of relationship, a way to come to God. Now we can come to the Father through him. So we don't stand in nearly the same place as that original audience. They stood before. Before this Jesus, who is our restoration, our redemption, our key to relationship with God. They had to look forward to something far, far future. But we stand between. 
It's not finished yet, but it, it has started. This, this salvation which Isaiah sets out as our hope, well, it has started. Relationship now stands open to us. Restoration begins to break in. So how do we actually hold on? What do we do to steady our knees? What does it mean to strengthen our hands while we live in this between time? Well, we need to look forward. We need to look out to the horizon where this salvation and judgment is coming. But we also need to look back. We need to look back to Jesus. And remember, it started. It's already started with him. Churchill famously said, this is not the end. This is not even the beginning of the end. But it is, perhaps, the end of the beginning. Why? can't quite do his accent but I don't quite agree either now it's not the end yes it's not the end but now is the beginning of the end just like Isaiah tells us in verse 4 be strong do not fear your God will come he will come with vengeance with divine retribution he will come to save you Let's pray together.